afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme. We're here every week, as I'm sure you're well aware, and uh, we're here to promote and to defend public education. And we have a website at www.adogs.info and the press release of 1002 this week is a continuation of the criticism of the Bonner Green Rule idea that we should fully fund private schools so long as they are free. Now, public education is free, it's non-sectarian, and it's universal. And if you fund private schools, and we do, we fund them, we fund them more than we give to public schools at the moment, uh, you give them the licence to select children on the basis of class, creed and colour which means that you produce a very segregated class-ridden society, which we're well on the way to doing at the moment in Australia. So we don't necessarily agree with this. But um, over in, uh, in England, and perhaps in, in some respects in, in the United States and in Sweden, they have been trying this idea and they've decided in Sweden it doesn't work. So here is our press release, 1002. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Press release 1002. Swedish schools minister declares free private school system a failure. So in a recent book, Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed Its Schools, Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner put forward a proposal to fully fund private schools subject to them not charging fees and not enrolling students on the basis of ability. In their press release 997, Dogs criticised this proposal and referred to a similar criticism produced by Trevor Cobalt of Save Our Schools. There was nothing particularly original in the Greenwell Bonner proposal, although it was understandable that they were casting about for any compromise that might present a way out of the current intractable education crisis. For Australia is swiftly descending into an inequitable, class-ridden and tribal society as we divide our children on the base of class, creed and colour. Similar free private school experiments have been introduced in the charter schools of America, the British free schools of Michael Gove and the Friskola of Sweden. But public school advocates in both America and Britain have little time for either the charter schools or the British free schools. And now, according to the UK Guardian, the Swedish schools minister has declared the free private school system a failure. The following report from Miranda Bryant in Stockholm on the 10th of November describes the situation in that country. So Lotta Edholm aims to limit the profit-making ability of Friskola in her plans for education reform. Sweden has declared a system failure in the country's free schools, pledging the biggest shake-up in 30 years and calling into question a model in which profit-making companies run state education. Sweden's Friskola privately run schools funded by public money, have attracted international acclaim, including from Britain, with the former Education Secretary Michael Gove using them as a model for hundreds of new British free schools opened under David Cameron's government. But in recent years, a drop in Swedish educational standards, rising inequality and growing discontent among teachers and parents has helped fuel political momentum for change. A report by Sweden's biggest teachers' union, Sveriges Lerare, warned in June of the negative consequences of having become one of the world's most marketised school systems, including the viewing of pupils and students as customers and a lack of resources resulting in increased dissatisfaction. The union demanded the phasing out of for-profit and marketised schools and in the meantime that they reinvested any profits in their businesses. Joint stock companies are not a long-term sustainable form of operation to run school activities, it said. 
Now, Lotta Edholm, a Liberal who was appointed schools minister last year during the formation of Sweden's moderate party-run minority coalition, has launched an investigation into the issue which she said would oversee her plans for reform. It will not be possible in the reformed system to take out profits at the expense of a good education, she told The Guardian at the Ministry of Education and Research in Stockholm. Edholm said she planned to severely limit schools' ability to withdraw profits and to introduce fines for free schools that did not comply. It can't be that the state pumps in lots of money so that you can improve your business and at the same time a portion of that money goes out to you as profits. That we will put a stop to, she said. The largest profits were made by upper secondary schools, known in Sweden as Gymnasia Skola, she said. There it has been easier to make profits through having bad quality. There are thousands of free scholar, directly translated as independent schools, but known as free schools, across Sweden, with a higher proportion in cities. About 15% of all primary school children, 6 to 16 year olds, and 30% of all upper secondary school pupils, 16 to 19 year olds, go to a free school. Edholm said she could not put a number on how many schools were experiencing these issues, but said the problem lay in the system itself. It's not just a problem that's in a number of schools, but it becomes a system failure of everything. She also pledged to tighten rules on religious influence on teaching in religious schools and to strengthen rules on school ownership, citing a government report that warned free schools could be exploited by Swedish and foreign owners wanting to influence society. Edholm also accused some free schools of grade inflation, with teachers awarding children grades that were too high, creating an imbalance across the whole system. It's understood to be a particular problem in free schools with a low proportion of qualified teachers and schools run as joint stock companies. Free schools tend to give higher grades than municipal schools. That risks that in the end it could be that the municipal schools give higher grades and that in turn is very bad, she said. It's unfair and it leads additionally to students thinking they are much more knowledgeable than they are. So the dog's position. As dogs have constantly argued since 1964, the current downward trajectory into inequality can only be halted by the taking over of the private religious sector, which taxpayers are already subsidising to extremely high levels, and the withdrawal of state aid from schools that wish to be genuinely independent. And you can find a link to that Guardian article contained within this press release on the dog's website at www.adogs.info. Back to you, Jean. Well, thanks, Dale. Now, last week, the um, Saturday paper, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are very interested and enjoy the Saturday paper uh, in Melbourne. There was a very interesting article, Power and Violence in Private Schools. And we've asked Andy to read this because if anyone is an expert on what goes on in private schools, it's Andy. Over to you, Andy. Thank you, Jean. And yes, I am I'm unfortunately a product of the private schools. I went to Knox Grammar School from 1979 to 1984. And uh, before I do read the article, I do want to give a content warning. This article focuses on violence towards women perpetrated by men. I'll be providing helpline information at the end for listeners affected by the content. Power and violence in private schools. The murder of a young woman at an elite private school and the reaction from a former principal has highlighted a broader culture of privilege in which young boys are protected from consequence or culpability. When a former head of St Andrews Cathedral School in Sydney wrote a note to parents and staff about the murder of sports coach Lily James by a past student, he was quick to declare the horrific situation to be random and hence impossible to have prevented. Dr John Collier, now the headmaster at another elite institution, the Sydney Church of England Grammar School known as Shaw, nevertheless offered some theories about what might have prompted Paul Thoyson, otherwise an absolute delight, to kill Lily James with a claw hammer in the bathroom at the very school where he was held up as an emblem of success. What led to his mental disintegration, Collier wondered in his note earlier this month. 
Was it a psychotic episode which was deeply out of character? The literature on pornography for boys and young men says that many see this kind of appalling sexualized violence on the screen, which some, amidst the greatest tragedy, act out in real life. Does any of this apply to him? We will never know. New South Wales Police Force are investigating the likelihood Thoisin's attack was not random, however. It was not the brain snap that many, often men, look for when explaining away extreme violence. Thoisin reportedly bought a hammer, not the one he ended up using in the attack, at a hardware store the day he killed James. He also rented a car and drove it to work at the school, knowing he would later need transport to get to Vaucluse, where he would throw himself from a cliff. Two hours before the murder, Thoisin was seen in CCTV footage at the Vaucluse clifftop, examining the same area to which he would return after his crime was done. Collier, who was trying, if clumsily, to make the point that all people have a capacity for evil on some level, went on to collapse both Lily James and the man who murdered her into the same breath. Now, two young lives are destroyed in their prime, Collier wrote. Two families have had their lives upturned in the most blistering manner in a way which will never really recede, and multiple friends, relatives and staff in two schools have been left in deep turmoil. The comments prompted a wave of public condemnation, not least because they represented a broader cultural problem in prideful elite institutions, a problem of minimising the behaviour of young men or subtly shielding them from the ordinary consequences of the real world, the one that exists outside the halls of a private school that charges tens of thousands of dollars in fees each year. Even in the outrage of his acts, Thoisin got this treatment. We're seeing the erasure of that division between offender and victim, journalist and anti-sexual violence campaigner Nina Funnell tells the Saturday paper. They are co-opting the sympathy and the public sentiment that attaches to Lily and transferring it to Thoisin. They're creating, they're treated as a unit and they symbolically reunite victim and perpetrator in death. In August 2021, in the journal Gender and Education, Monash University researchers George Varian and Jane Wilkinson published a study titled The Erasure of Sexual Harassment in Elite Private Boys' Schools. It details interviews with 32 teachers who witnessed or were subjected to sexual harassment by their students. The study noted the extreme reputational demands of the elite school environment often pitted teachers not only against the students who were harassing them, but against parents and their own headmasters. School heads were reportedly actively encouraging teachers to get the parents on side, which is unsurprising considering that when a scandal arises within such a school and puts its own reputation at risk, this can seriously jeopardise their market share and viability, the paper says. One teacher's account affirms previous studies where, for boys, practising sexual harassment work to gain power. However, in elite private boys' schools, it is perhaps not an issue of gaining power, but a question of whether boys are mobilising parent-school relations to act as a cover for sexual harassment. If elite private schools are run like businesses and bad news can spread, then it stands to reason that market pressures might lead administrators to play down or disappear sexual harassment before these incidents come to parents' attention. What they say, and how they conduct themselves, is not in step with broader society, and this behaviour of insulating and protecting and minimising is out of step with what we know has to happen in order to prevent another generation of women from being subjected to violence from men. An urge to silence or paper over misconduct would support media accusations about the culture of cover-up in elite private boys' schools. However, it also affirms scholarly research that suggests administrators mobilise to minimise reputational damage when sexuality and sexual violence comes into collision with ideals of reputation, control and proper behaviour upon which elite schools depend for their marketing. These soft brush strokes, the study said, combined with an unwillingness to account for the construction of a masculinity that embodies traditional discourses of men being the provider, leader and protector of an ideal nuclear family, could lead to a substantial divergence between the values elite schools purport to teach and what boys actually learn. The marketing of these institutions, themselves almost always modelled on British public schools such as Eton and Westminster School, is critical. Take Hale School in Perth, which welcomes viewers to its website with the exhortation, Your son is unique. He has his own path to tread. He deserves an education that amplifies his true potential. The words are deliberate. They are a careful description of specialness and entitlement. Unique. Deserves. The school boasts of producing young men who will make a difference in the world. It does not mention that they include Ben Robert Smith. That boys become men in a culture of sexism and misogyny is not a new concern, nor is it one confined to schools, public or private. 
Yet elite and cloistered institutions of all shades, whether they be churches or universities, legal bar associations or sporting clubs, impose an added layer of removal from the ordinary mores of society. Yeah, I think these types of places are out of touch, Monash researcher Dr Stephanie Westcott tells the Saturday paper. What they say and how they conduct themselves is not in step with broader society, and this behaviour of insulating and protecting and minimising is out of step with what we know has to happen in order to prevent another generation of women from being subjected to violence from men. Westcott, whose background is in education, and who is currently studying the effect of online alpha male influences such as Andrew Tate on boys in schools, says elite schools predict notions of power and status that tend to come with particular histories, norms, culturals and mechanisms, as well as expectations from parents. There are also the particular expectations from the institution itself around the type of students that the school will produce, she says. In many schools, a woman can't specifically record sexual harassment that has happened to them. It has to sort of go under a broader category in the database, another type of behaviour. And that's a problem because then we have no way of knowing the scope of the problem. In other ways, however, these very schools are borderline obsessed with sex. Shaw headmaster John Collier's throwaway reference to pornography in his email to parents about Paul Thoyson was no accident. Religious schools across Australia have run, or continue to run, consent and sex education courses mandated through the national curriculum, but adapted with a Christian lens. Take the King's School in Sydney, where student uniforms mimic soldiers' dress. In August, the school held a launch of a book by one of its old boys. The launch of A Willing Spirit, written by Marty Woods, was hosted by Headmaster Tony George. Current boarders were invited to attend. The better we are as mentors and coaches, the better we are as educators, George told the crowd of old boys, staff and parents. And that is particularly at a time now in our Western world where we think just how important knowledge and skills might be. But what we're missing is wisdom. The world needs more wisdom, more than it needs more knowledge and more skills. And the kind of wisdom we speak of is a Christian kind of wisdom. It's a wisdom that sees that we're all created equally in the image of God. Marty Woods, who volunteers for Christian group Fusion International, wrote his book in devotion to his first mentor, Rod West, and as a guide to men mentoring boys. It features an extensive section encouraging mentors to talk with their charges about masturbation. I will often ask what their spirit wants to say to them. Interestingly, I can't recall hearing anyone's spirit encouraging them to masturbate, he writes. I am not pushy about this, but at a certain point, I will often challenge guys to have a go at giving up and experiencing what is different. I haven't heard anyone tell me they feel less free after giving up. I'm committed to helping mentees face lies from the evil one and agreements made when it comes to porn, masturbation and sexual encounters. The Saturday paper is not suggesting Woods is doing anything untoward, just that boys in elite schools are often told their behaviour is a result of pornography addiction. And not, for example, a more fundamental worldview that implies men are entitled to power and control. A number of private schools, including the King's School and Knox Grammar School in New South Wales, Western Australia's Christchurch Grammar School and Bayside Christian College in Victoria, teach sex education from an off-the-shelf program created by Catholic motivational speaker Jonathan Doyle and his wife Karen. The Men We Need program contains two modules on pornography and a male sexuality 101 section that declares, we can tell a story of the awesome nature of what it means to be a male sexual person made in the image of God and how sexuality is a source of strength to be challenged into life-giving paths in marriage and family. Materials in the course, which also blames increasingly violent video games for the behaviour of men, have been endorsed by Catholic Education Office directors, bishops, education peak bodies and Christian schools associations. Doyle rails against endemic cultural Marxism with its inherent focus on victim groups and warns this was damaging to parenting. I would say vast swathes of the education system are immersed in forms of cultural Marxism whether they know it or not, so you have got to be highly selective and attuned to where your kids are at school. It's not just sex. Earlier this year, five boys from the King's School Cadet Corps tortured and killed a goanna while on a training camp. The grotesque act made it into the news headlines, and although he condemned the killing, Headmaster Tony George seemed almost as upset with the treatment of the boys in the media. So when things go wrong, such as scavenger hunts or online chat rooms or alleged animal cruelty, the tabloids and virtuous trolls whip up a frenzy of public shaming and virtue signalling in blaming schools and students for causing these kinds of problems. 
he wrote in response to the allegations. This is not to say that these things aren't wrong. On the contrary, they are not only wrong, but they can also be criminal. What I am saying is that the wrongful act does not justify the pillaring, shaming and vilification of students and their schools by the media or anyone else. George had already been criticised in the press over his desire for a plunge pool to be installed at his on-site residence and revelations that he, his wife and the deputy headmaster had spent close to $45,000 on business class flights and accommodation during a trip to Britain to cheer on students at a rowing regatta. Confidential internal staff meeting minutes obtained by the Saturday paper detail a culture of reactivity and blame when things like this go wrong and end up making headlines. On June 21 last year, the minutes note, the Sydney Morning Herald had been very active contacting governors, TKS, old boys and former staff to find out any gossip. They are on the hunt to concoct a story to discredit us, the note state. Please contact Tony if you are approached. How do we deal with this? The story was concocted. The school is being lavish and extreme in its expenditure. After the Goanna incident, Tony George told a meeting on May 8 this year it had been an uncomfortable journey for some when broached by the public, as seen by the way the media and the school community reacted. The public is very quick to judge, he said. Please remember there are children involved and we need to keep details confidential. Although we want justice, everyone has human rights. In the next breath he said, would it be nice if the regulatory responses were in place with the media? Tony George told the meeting police had cleared two boys of any crime with the school to take further action. According to researchers and advocates, there is a common thread through all of these behaviours. It is the outsourcing of blame. The cause is never privilege. It is violent video games, pornography, cultural Marxism and the media. Nina Funnell says Dr John Collier's comments about Paul Foyson's murder of Lily James are symptomatic of a broader blindness to reality. It's a telling insight into a completely warped view of violent and controlling relationships, and that was really defensive, she says. At no point did he engage with the idea that there might be a question about institutional culture or institutional responsibility as a contributing factor in what is played out. It read as highly defensive and an urgent attempt to reframe the effects and the narrative by throwing out these potential red herrings, you know, blaming everything for from pornography to a mental snap. There is a sense the ordinary rules don't apply to these boys. After the Goanna killing incident, Tony George ended a long essay about virtuous trolls and the media with a refrain that some staff took as a joke, R.I.P. Varinus Varius. Those last words are the Latin name for the lace monitor, the protected species his students killed. Schools such as King's are among the final places where Latin is taught, and the school's motto is written in the same dead language, a code for those privileged enough to read it. Fortiter et fideliter, bravely and faithfully. And so, yeah, just like a, a bit of a comment from my point of view as, you know, an ex-private school student, this is kind of exactly on, in line with what I experienced. The comments about the, uh, from Collier, the principal of Shaw, about maybe this man snapped, it just shows a real ignorance of the gendered nature of violence and the factors that increase risk. And that is ignorance born of privilege. And the privilege that he's displaying there, he's not alone in holding. And the, the, this article just points out how this is in fact normal and typical behavior of the leadership within these elite private boys schools. There's a real focus on maintaining reputation um, over addressing the real issues around gender and violence. And this allows these issues to continue unabated. And, you know, by blaming these shocking events on external factors and by trying to minimise the impact of the actions of, you know, in the later example, the boys and the lizard, this behaviour absolutely echoes the behaviour of violent men in general, avoiding responsibility and minimising actions. So before we finish, I do want to give some of those contact numbers. Some Australia-wide ones, there's 1800RESPECT, that's 1800-737-732. Uh, 1800 respect 1800 737 732 there's the men's referral service uh, a, a fabulous uh, telephone counseling service for violent men to help them take responsibility for their actions men's referral service their number is 1300 766 491 that's a men's referral service 1300 766 491 we've also got kids line uh, 1800 55 1800 that's kids line 1800 55 1800 and for Victorian listeners, we've got our Safe Steps for Women Experiencing Violence. That's 1-800-015-188. Safe Steps, 1-800-015-188. And we've also got the Women's Information and Referral Exchange, 1-300-134-130. That's WIRE, or Women's Information Referral Exchange, 1-300-134-130. 
And back to you, Jean. Thank you very much. Things haven't changed since I was um, asked to go and uh, do some teaching at Shaw Grammar years ago. I didn't. Uh, I think I lasted a week. I wasn't going to go back there. No, Not I as can't a, blame you. a young girl. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, that, that, that was a system, fortunately, I was never asked to teach in or expected to teach in. But um, I'm very grateful for your for your um, take on it too, Andy. But we'll have a bit of a break because that was pretty meaty stuff. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not... You know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope. And uh, we've got a very interesting article from America, which we also think is um, relevant to the situation to a lot of our students in public schools at the moment. Why some schools are a step ahead in addressing student mental health needs. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. So I have an article here by Jeff Bryant, who is telling us why some schools are a step ahead in addressing student mental health needs. It seems that no community may be immune to what many are calling a national mental health crisis among children and teens. We needed a lot more mental and behavioural help after COVID, Meredith Mullen told our schools. Mullen is the community school director for Mahatma K. Gandhi Community School in Jersey City, New Jersey. During the lockdown and transition back to school, people had traumatic experiences. They were experiencing grief. They weren't being socialised. Coming back into a school setting was hard for many students. Behaviour also became more of an issue. Teachers reported higher numbers of students who were withdrawn or not participating, or they were sleeping in class. More than 1,300 miles away, in the north woods of the upper Midwest, public school educators face a similar situation. Many of our families are experiencing grief, said Deanna Horon, community school coordinator at King Elementary School in Deer River, Minnesota. Even before the pandemic, a lot of our students were affected by primary caregivers passing away, she said. But since COVID, it's been like an epidemic. Other sources of trauma that are affecting student mental health, according to Horon, include parent incarceration, suicide, substance abuse, homelessness and divorce. One student's family called the school looking for sleeping bags. They had become unhoused and were living in a tent in the woods. Another student started missing school regularly after her mother committed suicide. Although each of these schools is having a shared experience of widespread mental trauma amongst their students, the schools serve strikingly different communities. Jersey City Public Schools is a highly diverse urban school district consisting of 39 schools, located across from Lower Manhattan in New York. Mahatma K. Gandhi Community School is a pre-K through grade 8 school. It is in a neighbourhood people like to call Little India, according to Mullen, due to the high percentage of first-generation immigrant families from India and South Central Asia. There is also a large population of families from Middle Eastern and North African countries, she said. We are one of the most diverse schools in Jersey City. We have families that come from, I think, 59 countries. In contrast, Deer River Public Schools is a rural district serving about 900 students, according to Hron. Drawing from an area of more than 500 square miles, including the tiny town of Deer River, with a population of 900 people, and other surrounding small towns. About half the students in King Elementary identify as white, according to Hron, and the rest are mostly Native American including families from the Leech Lake Reservation, which is home to around 10,000 members of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. Mahatma K. Gandhi Community School and King Elementary are far from being alone in their endeavour to address the rising mental health needs of their students. 
a national survey of 3,300 high schoolers conducted in spring 2020 found close to a third of students felt unhappy and depressed much more than usual, according to a 2022 report by the American Psychological Association. As the 2022 school year drew to a close, the Washington Post reported that the results of a survey found 70% of schools saw a rise in the number of students wanting mental health services. Even more, 76%, according to the Post, said faculty and staff members have expressed concerns about depression, anxiety and trauma in students since the start of the pandemic. When the 2023 school year opened, an analysis by Mental Health America found more than 1 in 10 youth in the U.S. are experiencing depression that is severely impairing their ability to function at school or work or at home, with family or in their social life. Yet a significant majority, 59.8%, who reported having major depression, did not receive any mental health treatment. Press reports about how schools are trying to address their students' mental health needs often frame the story as a matter of educators improvising, with each school or district essentially cobbling together its own strategy, rather than relying on a structured response that is replicable on a wider scale. However, Mullen and Hron spoke of taking a systematic approach to the problem and using a method that can be implemented in any school. Their schools practice an educational approach that is commonly called community schools, whereby the school positions itself as a community hub for providing programs and services that are reflective of what students and families say they need. Essentially, to, essential to the community school's approach is to have a staff person like Mullen and Hron, whose sole responsibility is to act as a go-between amongst school staff, families and the surrounding community to identify overlooked needs of students and families, and then locate assets both within and outside of the school to address those needs. In no way do proponents of the community school's approach suggest that schools have to practice this approach in order to address the mental health needs of students. But, as Mullen and Hron explained, schools that do practice this approach are a step ahead when students' mental health problems become widespread. Mullen is not an educator per se, as she works for the Centre for Supportive Schools, a non-profit that, according to its website, partners with Jersey City Public Schools to implement a community school's strategy. Prior to her move to Jersey City, Mullen was a community school coordinator in Tampa Bay, Florida, where she was an employee of the district. There are five schools in Jersey City using the community schools approach, according to Mullen, and all of them work with the Centre for Supportive Schools to help put into place programs and partnerships to address the specialised needs of each school, whether the needs are for a food pantry, an after-school program, or vision and dental care. The approach, according to Mullen, is about really listening to each stakeholder to determine what their critical needs are and then purposefully putting plans and programs into place to meet those needs. This is more effective than just assuming what people want or just plopping down initiatives because they sound pretty. And it's not about meeting the needs of just the students, but of all the stakeholders, including the school staff, parents and surrounding community, she said. One of Mullen's primary tasks as a community school director is to conduct an annual assessment of the school and the community. A consistent finding over the past three years has been that the number of parents and students wanting mental and behavioural care has been astounding, she said. Consequently, she collaborated with colleagues and outside partners to put into place new systems and structures to make students who might be struggling with their mental health to make sure students who were struggling with their mental health weren't being overlooked. This included creating a data-informed teacher referral system and a student support team. Anytime a teacher notices a student is struggling with behaviour, attendance or academics, the teacher puts a referral into the system that gets passed on to the student support team. In bi-weekly meetings, the team pulls up all of the data that's been gathered about each student. The team members decide if there needs to be an intervention. Interventions could be an academic pullout with one-on-one -on -one instruction or a push in and of mental health staff to work directly with the student in the classroom. Or the student may need to be part of the caseload for a social worker. Other options could be to contact the family or to make a referral to an outside clinic for behavioural and mental health services. 
Beginning in 2023, the school also opened a full-service health center. Sorry. Beginning in 2023, the school also opened a full-service health center with full-time licensed clinical social workers to help the mental health services for students and their families. Part of the health clinics program is reserved for parents to be part of the caseloads for social workers. This often involves a lot of grief counselling or help with housing problems and employment, according to Mullen. Similarly, at King Elementary, Hron and her colleagues have also created new systems and structures focused on student mental health. Although Hron, unlike Mullen, is an employee of the school, she works with an outside partner, North Homes Children and Family Services, to provide the school students and families with access to mental health services. In a rural school district, like the one King Elementary serves, which stretches for more than 500 square miles, access is a big problem. One of the biggest barriers for families to get access to mental health is getting through the paperwork, Hron said, especially with families that live in remote places like many of our families do. So one of our advantages in having the community schools approach is that we have someone who can bring families into the school or take the paperwork to the family's home and help with filling it out. This step alone has greatly increased participation in our mental health services. Another challenge is keeping the lines of communication open, Hron said. Families generally live more than 30 or 40 miles from the school and the only other options for mental health services are hours away in Grand Rapids or Bemidji. If we didn't have the full service model of community schools approach, we wouldn't be as readily available to check up on our families and make sure they're doing okay, she said. Brittany Sutherland, a mental health professional at North Homes Children and Family Services, explained how the partnership arrangement between her nonprofit provider and the schools work. I talk with Ron multiple times a week, Sutherland said. She helps with getting services to kids more quickly. She provides us with the insights about the child and the family and what their needs might be. She fosters relationships with families and brings in other school staff to help when needed. According to Sutherland, because the families know Hron, it's much easier for North Homes to start developing relationships with the families. In other schools Sutherland works with, they don't use the community schools approach and she has to cold call the family, which can be awkward. Often those families are experiencing a crisis and may not be ready to start a conversation about mental health with a stranger. Without a community schools coordinator, it takes longer and it's much harder to establish a relationship with a family, Sutherland said. In fact, among the schools she works with, King Elementary is the only one that uses the community schools approach, Sutherland said, and having a community school coordinator to work with makes a huge difference. In the schools that do not have a coordinator, she said, there's a greater likelihood that children will fall through the cracks. I can't emphasize enough how much more impactful it is to have someone on the school staff who is specifically dedicated to supporting families and checking up on them, Hron said. Teachers and administrative staff don't have time to do this. For instance, in the case of the unhoused family sleeping in the woods, Hron found them donated sleeping bags and camping equipment. For the student whose mother had committed suicide, Hron found that she was living with her grandfather who did not have reliable phone service or transportation. Hron arranged for the installation of a low-cost landline in her grandfather's home so the student could call the school on days where she needed a ride to school. While it's difficult for Mullen and Hron to draw a straight line from their use of community schools approach to its impact on students and families, they both see signs of their efforts yielding positive results. One of the signs Mullen pointed to comes from the results of a periodic school climate survey the school sends to students. According to Mullen, more students say they want to come to school and that they're happy to be there and that they're engaging in class when they are there. Attendance data has also improved. According to Mullen, Mahatma K. Gandhi Community Schools attendance is 93% in 2023. The percentage of chronically absent students has decreased from 41% to 21% in just one school year. Also, out-of-school suspensions have decreased and bullying incident reports have also decreased significantly, she said. Hron pointed to similar evidence that the community school's approach is making a positive difference to her students' mental health. Since we've shifted the approach, she said, I see kids getting a lot more support both in school and in their homes. 
I see more kids having lunch groups. I also see more teachers who are relieved and not having to do the work of teaching students how to interact with their peers now that we have experienced mental health practitioners doing that work. Nevertheless, some question the needs for schools to even provide mental health students to services. Many states are considering and passing so-called parent Bill of Rights laws, like the one in Florida, that may restrict schools from providing students access to these services. A similar law in Arizona compels schools to disclose to parents anything relevant to the emotional and mental health of students, which could discourage students from discussing their feelings and will likely put school staff in an awkward and potentially contentious position between the child and their parents. On a national stage, right-wing advocacy organisations have attacked the idea that public schools should adopt an education approach that is designed to help schools address the range of issues that affect students and families, including mental and social-emotional health. In 2022, a majority of Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives voted against a bill to provide grants from the federal government for school-based mental health services. While President Joe Biden posted on social media that mental health care is health care, the account for Mums for Liberty, a Florida-based pressure group that calls for book banning and restrictions on how schools teach history, replied that mental health care has no place in public schools. The controversy is not lost on educators who are implementing the community school approach. We live in a very rural and conservative community, and I get pushback from people, including some of our school staff, who feel mental health problems are best left up to families, said Hron. What I say is that it would be ideal if mental health were left up to families to address, but that's not how it works in many families. So it's up to us to provide what our students need in order for them to be able to learn, she said. As Hron sees it, providing students with access to mental health services also makes it easier for teachers and other school staff to do their jobs. If a kid comes into school after having a rough night, they just aren't going to drop all of those feelings and suddenly learn, she said. Fantastic point to finish on there. That is very true. Back over to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Sorrel. You know, that, that article was very interesting. Jeff Bryant is a great promoter of public education over in the United States. And we'll stay in the United States for a little while longer uh, because here is Jeff. Thanks, Jean. Um, today we're going to stay in the United States because there's a lot going on over there. I'm going to start out with a, a real wave of, of the flag and a very dangerous development that's occurring over there. It centres on a right-wing group called the Heritage Foundation, which has been going since the 80s and has always put forward agendas since the Reagan administration for basically a right-wing wish list of how they'd like to see government pursue various agendas, conservative agendas in the future, and they almost create a playbook. But this is different. This is actually very different. Um, The Heritage Foundation uh, has gathered together funding from a large number of groups. This this report I'm putting together is basically an amalgam of of stuff that's emerging from a a September release of... um, material from the artist, uh, sorry, Associated Press, M- M- MSNBC reports, the Midas Touch Network reports, and, and also the original documents themselves, which are available from the Heritage Foundation. You can download the agenda yourself, although it's expanded since the download has been available, but it's about a government in waiting. And it's from a, the idea is that um, it's an agenda to be implemented on the first day uh, that a right wing, uh, that a Republican president takes over. It has Trump in mind, but by no means is it limited to Trump. It's an agenda for the very next Republican president to take over. And if you think that it, it is far fetched, out of the um, 203, I think it is, um, Republican members of Congress, 90 of them sign up to this sort of agenda. They are the MAGA people, but beyond that, these are not just lunatic fringe. Uh, organisations, these are, uh, and how it affects education will become clear because it's very much part of their agenda. The day one plan is to take over and remove what they call the deep state. The agenda contains a 1,031 page booklet in, in 30 sections earmarked for action post a Republican win. They intend to fire 50 to 100,000 employees seen as standing in the way of the right-wing agenda, replacing them with those loyal to the right-wing Christian nationalist agenda. These are the administrators of government. These are the people who administer 
all sorts of government departments, but who might stand in the way of anything the right wing wants to do. The plan is to alter the balance of power by increasing the president's authority over the reins of government, and thus creating an authoritarian Christian nationalist government without traditional oversight or independence. It's open in its plans to gut worker protections and dismantle environmental protections. They seek to install, install a biblical-based social science-reinforced definition of marriage and family. That's a quote. This is an agenda not f just for the Trump pre presidency, but for whoever is the next Republican president who pushes Christian nationalism. Um, they're pretty serious. It's funded by 75 right-wing groups considered as establishment organisations, not just extremist paramilitary groups, but it's funded to the tune of over $22 million. Under this plan, the president would not be bound by existing legislation. If a bureaucrat says you can't do something, the president could just fire them. Existing civil servants would have to sign a loyalty oath, not to the government, but to the president directly and agree to any agenda the president wants. Expertise and independence would be out. Specific policies include an agenda which almost uses the handmaid's tale as a set text. They seek to invoke the Insurrection Act on the first day in office and deploy the military against any civil demonstrations or disturbances. This was identified as an immediate priority. It targets LGBTQIA rights, equating talk of these subjects with pornography or paedophilia. It instead promotes the rights of the unborn and would ban or severely restrict abortion nationwide. It would ban all mention of critical race theory, gender ideology and government and environmental extremism, as they quote, that's their quote, from schools. It recommends banning discussion of gender equality, reproductive health and reproductive rights from schools nationwide. That means banning discussion, discussion of gender equality. It recommends implementing Christian biblical-based ideologies despite the First Amendment bans on the government establishing a religion and attacks immigration. It wants to reform voting rights and much more, which obviously means reducing black people's rights or accessibility of anyone in a democrat area uh, to uh, gain votes, um, pushing their uh, various um, gerrymanders and things like that. It seeks to defund the Department of Justice and ensure presidential control of the DOJ, the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. It wants to eliminate the Departments of Commerce, Health and Services and get this, the Department of Education. It seeks to give the president overarching power of the other branches of power, including Congress and the Senate. In order to train the replacements for the so-called deep state administrators, Project 2025, it's called, is making 30 training videos to train the approximately 50,000 right-wing warriors, as they call them, to take over the 30 project areas, including the Department of Justice, Department of Education and others. They're keen to develop experts at killing bureaucracy, as they say, and have started vetting those they plan to train for ideological loyalty to the agenda. For education, the list of Project 2025 starts on page 319 of the downloadable PDF. It includes, the, and I'll quote, the mission, federal education policy should be limited and ultimately the Federal Department of Education should be eliminated. When power is exercised, it should empower students and families, not government. Our pluralist society, families and students, should be free to choose from a diverse set of school options and learning environments that best fit their needs. Our post-secondary institutions should also reflect such diversity, with room not only for traditional liberal arts colleges and research universities, but also faith-based institutions, career schools, military academies and lifelong learning programs. Elementary and secondary education policy should follow the path outlined by Milton Friedman in 1955, wherein education is publicly funded, but education decisions are made by families. Ultimately, every parent should have the option to direct his or her child share of education funding through an education savings account, which would empower parents to choose a set of education options that meets their, their child's unique needs. Other parts of the agenda are racial. They seek to move any programs that um, seek to address disadvantage in, like uh, amongst black children or Indian children. Here they say, move the tribally controlled post-secondary career and technical education to the Bureau of Indian Education. Transfer the Office of Career Technical Ed Adult Education to the Department of Labor and 
transfer all Indian education programs to the Bureau of Indian Education. Um, these are just some, there's a whole heap of things, any special administration uh, which is designed to promote inequality or to reduce inequality is to be basically dismissed, to, to be abolished. And look, it is completely frightening. Um, if this were to be implemented, um, it would be absolutely tragic, I think. The two guys in charge of the team, uh, Paul Dans, and who's the director of the Heritage Foundation's Project 2025, and Spencer Crichton, who's the associate director. Uh, Paul Dans was the former chief of staff of the Office of Personal Management during the Trump administration. Uh, Spencer Cretian, Mike Cretton, former special assistant to the president and social director of president presidential personnel. So they're Trump people. This People are only just waking up to this in the States. I don't think they realise how advanced these plans are. They've actually started already training uh, videos that they're using. There's 30 trading videos being produced, which are designed to train the up-and-coming 50,000 people that they intend to employ. They've started vetting them uh, as well. They target LGBTQIA rights, equating talk of these subjects with pornography or paedophilia. They, yeah, they recommend implementing Christian biblical-based ideologies and such and so forth. Anyway, it is a major threat. It's an existential threat to public education in the United States. And if they were to become elected, not now, but down the track, it would be a disaster for public education in the United States and could serve as a, um, a template for other countries as well. So we do have to be very, very, very aware of what's going on. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Jeff. We are going to now have Dale tell us about our good news story for the week, our great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School is John Monash Science High School. So Monash Science High School is a specialist senior secondary school that caters for students in year 10 through to year 12. The students undertake a three-year VCE program rich in the study of science and mathematics-based subjects, also offering a breadth of studies in other subjects from humanities, phys ed, arts and language fields. JMSS offers a range of outreach programs that all Victorian students can access, from primary schools, littlest scientists, to the most advanced year 12 mathematicians. Since opening in 2010, JMSS has built a strong reputation for offering exciting, challenging and informative learning opportunities for students across the state through outreach programs such as Little Scientists and Mini Mathematicians, where JMSS students Students mentor pri primary school students, Emerging Sciences Victoria, a virtual classroom for Year 9 and 10 students, and Regional Science Exchange, a three-week exchange program for Year 10 students at JMSS. So little scientists and mini mathematicians, every Wednesday, the JMSS students participate in co-curricular studies across a range of activities such as knitting and philosophy, Minecraft robotics, Unimaths and others. Two such programs are little scientists and mini mathematicians, which benefit JMSS students and students from primary schools around Melbourne. These programs help primary school students develop an understanding of STEM topics, communication and problem-solving skills, just to name a few. The Regional Science Exchange Program gives Year 10 students the chance to attend JMSS for three weeks and be hosted by families in the JMSS community. Participating students will engage in core classes and electives, such as medical physics, microbiology and materials science, as well as extended experimental investigations. In 2023, students from 16 different regional schools took part and the pro program will run again in 2024. The Emerging Sciences Victoria program 
provides a virtual interactive classroom for years 9 and 10 students, delivering elective classes from JMSS staff, researchers, industry experts and academics from Monash. The program offers different courses each semester with new subjects added regularly, along with occasional micro-courses. Bioinformatics, Indigenous Science, Astrophysics and Neuroscience are just some of the subjects on offer. Now some facts from the Akara My School website. The enrolment is 656 and the ICSIA value is well above average at 1,116. So there's 50% of students have parents in the most wealthy income quartile, 31% of students in the second wealthiest, uh, 14% are in the third poorest quartile and only 6% from the lowest income quartile. So really a school with mainly advantaged students selected on academic ability with 73% speaking a language other than English and no Indigenous students. Uh, recurrent grants from the government are point. Two seven million from the Victorian government, nine million. Fees and parental contributions come to around five hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and other private contributions are at one point nine million dollars. So per pupil, it's around twenty thousand dollars to send a student to this school. And over three years, their capital grants are only two hundred and $60,000. So amazing stuff being done there and being made accessible to all school, all students. And it's a great state school. So congratulations, John Monash Science High School. You are our great state school of the week. Well, it's our time is gone. It's time for us to say goodbye for now, but uh, you might like to find out more about us and read our press release for this week at www adogs.info. And I'll take this opportunity to let our listeners know that there will be no dogs program on the 25th of November 2023. 3CR will be bringing you a very special live outdoor broadcast from a protest in the city based on women's rights and safety. But the dogs will be back again the very next week. From Dale, Jeff and Sorrel and Andy and myself, it's bye for now. i
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.